Um, as I begin this morning, I don't know how it's like for your household, uh, but uh, for Christina and I, we like to divide and conquer. It's been, it works, seems to work well for us. So when it comes to chores uh, around the house, you know, she does certain things the majority of the time, and I'll do other things the majority of the time, and so we know who has to do what. Uh, the same thing is when we come to gift giving. And so Christmas, as you know, there can be kind of frenzy, crazy, where you've got a lot of stuff to buy for. And so for us, we have our parents. Uh, we have my grandparents because we see them often. Uh, we do each other, our kids, and our nieces and nephews. We get something small for each of our nieces and nephews. And so we divide it up. Uh, Christina does our parents, um, our grandparents, the nieces and nephews, me, and the kids. And I get a gift for her. And so it works awesomely. It works awesomely. And so one of my favorite memes around every Christmas time is this one right here. Uh, on the right-hand side, it says, every mom watching you open Christmas presents in the morning with a cup of coffee. On the left-hand side, it says, every dad just as surprised <laughs> as you. So this is what happens to us. And so I think part of this ha- is because of our second year of marriage. It was Christmas time. And so I, I've shared this before, but I, money was tight. And so I went to Hobby Lobby because everything is 50% off there to get more bang for my buck. And I got her three presents. One, I don't remember what one of them was. The second one was a red candle that said love on it. And I remember that because she looked at me and I was like, yeah, we can put it in the living room. And she's like, no, you cannot put a red candle that says love in your living room. And then I got what I have affectionately referred to now as a vegetable medley. So it was a vase. I don't know if you, you've seen these, these. There are decorative vases you can put in your kitchen that have like fruit or vegetables in them. Like you don't eat them. You just sit there and it looks pretty, right? And so I was like, oh, she'll like this. And so I, I bought her one of these and uh, she immediately opened it and was like, no, that's not going in my kitchen, right? And so I tragically failed. And so ever since then, she has sent me exactly what she wants me to give her. Now, she says it's because she doesn't like surprises. I think it's because she doesn't trust me. And so this past Christmas, 10 plus years into our marriage, I was like, it's time, baby. I'm going to go rogue, right? And all year, all year, she was talking about how she wanted a Roomba because she's always having to sweep under the kitchen table after our kids, breakfast, lunch, and dinner all the time. They're little, they're messy, and so she's like, this is annoying, and so I was like, I'm going to do it, right? So she sent me what she wanted, but I did the research because some Roombas, the, you know, the self-vacuuming things will just go randomly wherever, but then the more expensive ones, they'll actually map your house, and you can tell them exactly where to vacuum, and so I was like, I'm going to get this one, and I found a, a used one on Amazon, and so I get it. I'm excited, also nervous. But excited, I'm like, it's been 10 years, so this is bombs, you know, it's not going to go well. Uh, she opened it, and she loved it. Thank you very much, okay? So I did it. I got a gift she didn't ask for, and she was really excited about it, although she has reminded me multiple times about the necklace that I did not get her that she asked for. But I promise, she really, she really liked it. Now, I share that because today, as we continue through the Gospel of Mark, I just want to present or start with this question. Uh, how do we know if we are following Jesus correctly? Right? It took me 10 years to figure out how to get a gift correctly for my wife without her telling me what it is. How do we know if you're a follower of Jesus, you're doing that? And of course, I, I don't mean perfectly. I don't mean always getting it right. But, but how do we, generally speaking, know if we are actually honoring God and how we live or if we're maybe just going through the motions? Uh, that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. And so if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black one around you. We would love for you to read along. And if you don't own a Bible, you can take one of those black ones home. It is our gift to you. We are in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, if you have no idea what that means, the Gospels are the first four books in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They are the story of the life of Jesus. And so we have been reading through uh, Mark's account of his life. Uh, Last week, if you were here or if you were watching online, uh, we looked at the walking on water and how Jesus does all these things that in the Hebrew Bible only God can do. And of course, Mark is continually showing us it's because Jesus himself 
is God. And so now we'll pick up the story, Mark chapter 7. Uh, we got 23 verses today, and we've got some cultural context that I have to explain, so I'm going to try to move somewhat quickly uh, so we can get through it together. So here's Mark chapter 7, verse 1. It says, The Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around him, so him being Jesus. So just for context here, Jerusalem is about 90 miles south of Capernaum, which is where Jesus and his disciples along the Sea of Galilee currently are. Uh, if, if you remember, we've already read throughout the Gospel of Mark that the Pharisees are leading the charge in the opposition of Jesus. They are trying to find a legal way to trap Jesus and to arrest him. They can't just go, go and arrest him willy-nilly because there's crowds everywhere, and he is extremely popular. And so they're trying to figure out a way to get him uh, that would make people not freak out and cause some big riot. And so after today's uh, reading, what we'll see, or after the text we look at this morning, we're going to see Jesus is actually going to leave the region of Galilee where he has spent most of his ministry so far and spend the most, the, most of his time in Gentile, that is in non-Jewish territory, before he heads back to Jerusalem where he's going to be uh, killed. And so the Pharisees are here to try to test Jesus. This is a, a legal, the high up rankings have come out of Jerusalem to try to see if they can trap Jesus. And so here's what they say, verse 2. It says, they, which are the Pharisees, observed that some of his, which is Jesus's disciples, were eating bread with unclean hands. Uh, that is, uh, or sorry, with unclean, that is unwashed hands. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, keeping with the tradition of the elders. When they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they have washed, and there are many other customs that they have received and keep, like the washing of cups, pitchers, kettles, and dining couches. Verse 5, so the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating bread with ceremonially unclean hands? So what has happened here is that the disciples are not uh, observing a Jewish custom. Uh, you'll notice in verse 3 through 5, it's kind of bracketed or parentheses. This is Mark adding and letting us know because his gospel was written primarily to a non-Jewish audience what was going on here. And so the, the, this is going to take me a minute, but let me just explain what's happening here so we can fully appreciate what's going on. Uh, it's important to note the development of what made someone ritually or ceremonially unclean kind of changed and developed throughout Jewish history. Um, and the, these are called rabbinical developments, where you would have various religious leaders throughout time kind of practically kind of articulate what does it mean to honor God in our current cultural context. And what would happen is often with good intention, but by the time Jesus rolls around, there's a lot of extra rules and regulations that aren't necessarily in the Torah. That's the first five books of the Bible that explain the law that have been developed and added to help the Jewish people practically live out their faith because uh, in their defense, uh, the Torah does not give prescriptions for every single situation that you might come across. And so they added them to try to honor God. And so what happens is in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, originally only the priests were required to wash like this, and they wouldn't do it before every meal. They would actually only do it before they would go into the tabernacle or when Jesus is around, now the temple. Uh, and so, what, and the only other times, if you weren't a priest, that you would do this is if you would come across certain bodily discharges. So, in other words, you wouldn't do it all the time. You wouldn't do it before every meal. You would only do it if you came across certain things that made you unclean. And so, here's what happens. Okay, so as Judaism encounters more Gentiles that are non-Jews, as they become exiled, as other people kind of take over their land, uh, they began begin to try to figure out how do we still live set apart? How do we still honor God in the cultural settings, even though we can't you know, be in charge of the rules and the regulations. And so again, 
Often with good intentions, the Pharisees and other religious leaders would add things to the law to make sure that the Jewish people stayed clean and pure and honored God. And so again, this washing here is not necessarily about hygiene as it is making yourself pure and honorable to God so that you can go to the temple and that you can present yourself before him. So think modern context. Think of like going on a date or going on a job interview. You you know, you put on nice clothes, you might shave, uh, you might uh, wear nice makeup, you know, you'd make sure your hair is done. You do all these things. Why? Because you're trying to honor the moment. And so that's what these rules and customs were. Now think on the other end of the spectrum that maybe a really good friend of yours gets in massive trouble with the law. And even though you haven't done anything wrong, you might distance yourself or maybe cut off some communication so that you don't get guilty by association. And so that's what's happening here. They're just not trying to be dirty by association. They're trying to cover all of their bases. And so All of that to say, the Pharisees essentially viewed their oral tradition, which is what they referred to as the tradition of the elders, as equal footing with the Old Testament and the Hebrew Hebrew Bible itself. A modern example is it's kind of like Roman Catholicism, who has kind of has scripture and their church tradition kind of on equal footing. Now, I would just say this, um, tradition in and of itself is not wrong. In fact, it can be wise for us to learn from the people that have gone before us so as not to repeat all of their mistakes. But the problem, again, is not trying to find ways to practically live out your faith. The problem is when what you do is more important than why you actually do it. And that's what Jesus is going to challenge here. Uh, And so the Pharisees want to know why Jesus' followers are not following the tradition of the elders. And then it says this, we'll continue in Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 6. Says he answered them, and you can go back to Mark on the screens as well. He says he answered them, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrine human commands. Abandoning the command of God, you hold on to human tradition. He, being Jesus, also said to them, you have a fine way of invalidating God's command in order to set up your tradition. And so what's happening here is that Jesus actually comes back and accuses the Pharisees more harshly than they are condemning him for his disciples' behavior, right? He's actually saying, in your attempt to do all these things right, you are actually literally abandoning the commands of God for what he refers to as human tradition. So he here does not refer to them as the, human, or as the tradition of the elders. He is just kind of downgrading their claim by saying, these are things that you have made up and you have added. Now, again, as we'll see, it's not necessarily wrong to do it. It's why they are doing it that is the problem. And in fact, what Jesus claims here is that their own traditions are not only being done with the wrong motivations, but they are also literally invalidating what God has clearly told them to do, right? And so he calls them hypocrites. So to be clear, he's not calling them hypocrites uh, because they, they want everyone else to ceremonially wash and they themselves don't do it. Why he calls them hypocrites is because they are, in, in a guise to look good in front of other people, they're acting like they care about honoring God when in reality they do not, right? They have been explicitly told certain things in the Old Testament, and we'll get an example in a second, that they are not even following. Uh, For for example, maybe think of like a modern example, right? We are to to love people, and of course, truth also matters. But if and how we engage with people, how we talk to them, how we talk about them, how we post online is not loving in any way, well, we are not doing what God has explicitly told us to do, which is to love people. 
Uh, in fact, it's always funny. We, every wedding seems to quote in some way, shape, or form First uh, Corinthians 13, which is Paul writing about this. You know, love, does, love is all of these things. It's not envy. It's not boastful. And if, if I don't love, I'm like a clanging symbol, right? In fact, we went to a wedding yesterday, and the officiant not only read part of First Corinthians 13, he read the whole thing right? At least I think he did because it was the King James Version, but he said love a lot. And so I'm assuming it was 1 Corinthians 13, right? And so if we don't love people, then we're invalidating what God has told us to do. Or again, to put it another way, uh, I would argue that what you do is less important than why you do it. I think Jesus, and he's going to give us an example in in a second of why this is the case. Now, to be clear, I would absolutely rather somebody do the right thing for the wrong reasons then do the wrong thing, right? And what we, how we live absolutely matters. What we do absolutely matters. But in this context, what you and I need to understand, if what we do is correct, but our motivation behind it is wrong, we should not assume we are honoring God, right? Because there's a lot of things and there's a lot of reasons why we might do the right thing, maybe to make us look good, or maybe because there's going to be some benefit if we act a certain way or do certain things. But if our motivation isn't actually to honor God, then we should not assume that he is up in heaven proud of us for doing things internally with all the wrong reasons. And so he is now going to give the Pharisees an example of how they do this. Let's continue to read chapter 7, verse 10. Here's an example of the the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Here's what it says, verse 10. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever speaks evil of father or mother must be put to death. But you say... If anyone tells his father or mother, whatever benefit you might have received from me is Corbin, that is, an offering devoted to God, you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. You nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many other similar things. So what's happening here that might be kind of confusing, Jesus here is referencing the fifth commandment, right? Honor your parents. And he is speaking about how some of them uh, would essentially give, they would make these, uh, co- these giving commitments to the religious establishment from resources that ha- should have gone for caring for their aging parents. So one of the ways you honor your parents, particularly in an ancient culture where there's no social security, there's no retirement funds, is that you care for them in their old age. That is what you are supposed to do. So again, let me just explain what's going on here so we can understand it. Uh, Corbin comes from the Hebrew word meaning offering. And again, it was a rabbinic custom or it was an oral tradition that developed over time, and it derived from the practice of devoting particular, or particular goods and resources to the Lord, and it's specified in Leviticus 27 and Numbers 18 about why it's important to do this. Again, Jesus is not against uh, making it possible for people to honor God in their context, and of course, that takes resources. But we can think of it this way, Corbin, uh, it was similar, it's similar to the concept of deferred giving. So you might have a will, or you might have certain investments that are going to go to certain charities or to your kids when you pass away, or when your kids become a certain age. Like you might have essentially deferred giving that when a certain time comes, uh, those proceeds or those, or those resources are going to go to that person or that nonprofit or that charity or whatever it is. But until that time comes, you still own all of those things. They're still in your possession. Uh, And so what what would happen in the ancient context is that somebody could dedicate essentially future giving and future resources to the temple or to their uh, their synagogue or whatever it might be, uh, but they would still have control of them until that time came. So here's the problem, right? Here's the problem. The fifth commandment in Scripture, Ten Commandments, obviously very important, 
is clear. Honor your parents. Again, in an ancient culture, this is how you made, made sure that they were okay uh, as they got older. However, what would happen is many of the Pharisees or many of the religious leaders would not let you break your Corbin commitment if something happened to your parents out, out of which you would need to use those resources to care for them. And in fact, we even have some ancient writings where they wouldn't let you break it, or if you did break your commitment, they would make you pay a fine. Right, in order to actually do what God has explicitly told you to do, which is to care for your parents. And so what Jesus is saying is that to them, their tradition is more important than doing what God explicitly told them to do. Care for your parents. And so he is saying that, you, that they are literally nullifying the word of God, and yet they would accuse Jesus? And maybe to put it this way, for us, if we can think about our context, it's a good question for us to ask, right? That like the Pharisees, uh, where do I value tradition over honoring God? And again, this is not anti-tradition or customs. They can be very good to help us stay on track and to stir our affection to Jesus. They are not bad in and of themselves. But it is worth reflecting on what actions do I value over the actual intent. Now, there are many ways you could do this. If we want to talk specifically about a spiritual example, it could be Bible reading or giving or serving or not gossiping or not looking at pornography or not doing these things. And what can happen if we're not careful is that we can assume as long as I do certain things or refrain from other things, then I'm good. It's almost like it excuses other things that we know we shouldn't be doing, that we know don't honor God, because we've done these other things that are somehow supposed to make up for it. Right now, these things can make you good, but not necessarily if your intent is not good. This is not a perfect example, but it reminds me, when I was in college, of a time where I, I was externally doing the right things, but not actually doing the right thing, and, and I paid for it. Uh, I, uh, in college, you have to take two different types of sciences. I had to take a life science, and I don't remember the other one because I hate science and I'm bad at it, right? And so I ended up taking this second science class, which after the fact realized I had to take another science class because it was a, a second life science class, and my advisor didn't like tell me I was so mad. But anyway, so I'm in this class, and I, it was the worst grade I have ever gotten in my life. I got a D. Now, part of it, to be, to be honest, is I'm pretty sure it was the year after my dad died, so all of my grades were, were lower, but I still shouldn't have got a D. But what happened was, I went to class all the time. Never skipped, didn't have my computer out, like I listened, uh, I paid attention. It doesn't help, though, that the guy was like the clear-eyed, dry-eyed guy. He was super monotone, like put you to sleep. I don't, but, but so I, I went to class, though. But I never did the readings. I never did the homework if it wasn't graded. Like, I didn't do anything. But I, I went to class. Like, I did the right thing you're supposed to do. And what happened? I got a terrible grade, right? Externally, I was looking like I was doing the right thing. I had the right action, but my intent wasn't good. And so I, my grade suffered. And so it's just worth asking, where can we, if we're not careful, have these traditions or these customs or these actions that may look good on the surface, but are not actually honoring God? This is what Jesus is challenging. And so then he continues, verse 14, chapter 7, by saying this. Summoning the crowd again, he told them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. Nothing that goes into a person from outside can defile him, but things that come up out of a person are what defile him. Right? He's saying, again, it's not what is outside that is a problem, but it is inside. It's not external, but it is internal. Our problem is that. And what Jesus is getting at is that the human heart or our motivation is much deeper and more serious than simply ceremonial look good and purity for other people. Or put it another way, what is abundantly clear in this text is that Jesus is after our hearts. 
Right? Jesus is after our hearts. He's not after us checking a box. He's not after us looking good before other people. He's after our lives and our desires and our motivations. He wants to radically change all of our life, not simply make us look good on the outside. Uh, it reminds me of what the psalmist says in Psalm 51, verse 16 and 17. It'll be on the screen. The psalmist writes this. You do not want to sacrifice, or I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humble heart, God. Now, here's what we know. Again, we're only reading two verses of Psalm 51. Uh, Clearly, God has commanded the Israelites at this point to do certain sacrifices for certain things. The psalmist is not saying that God doesn't want you to do those things. What the psalmist is saying is that if you do these sacrifices and you perform these rituals just to make yourself look good or to excuse other behavior, God is not after that. He wants our hearts. Or maybe put another way, what Jesus is saying here, that it is easy to check off the box of hand washing and not actually follow God, right? Or it is easy to come to church on Sunday and then live the, live the rest of your week however you please because you check the box of going to church. Or it's easy to, to pretend in front of your friends that your marriage is great when you're on the brink of the divorce, Or it's easy to never be vulnerable about your weaknesses and then judge others who do things in public that you do in private, right? It is really easy for us to do these things. And Jesus is saying, I'm after your heart, not these external rules just to make yourself look good. Again, he's not against them, and they certainly can help, but he's after the intent, not simply the action. And so then it says this, verse 17, when he went into the house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him about the parable, about the whole outside, inside, defiling a person and what that means. Verse 18, he said to them, Are you also lacking, as lacking in understanding? Don't you realize that nothing going into a person from the outside can defile him? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into the stomach and is eliminated. Thus he declared all foods clean. And so what's happening here is that Jesus takes his disciples aside to explain to them privately what he meant. Uh, Now, we also see that Mark tells us that Jesus is declaring all foods clean. We'll talk about that in a second. And the the question is why, especially with all their Jewish laws and customs about what foods you're allowed to eat and whatnot. He's saying because food itself doesn't change a heart. Literally, what he's saying is that it goes into the stomach and then into the, 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 the latrine or the toilet. Like that is not what changes you. The heart does. Now, one last thing, I just want to explain what's going on here. I'm not going to get into all of the dietary laws, but it's worth, again, mentioning what's happening here because this is significant and we can can miss it. Uh, When it says here, when Mark kind of adds another little uh, teaching for us about what Jesus meant, about making all foods clean, the connotation here is not uh, Jesus saying, you don't need to worry about which foods you eat anymore. Like that was an outdated idea. We no longer need to follow that. Uh, It's more the connotation that you see in the Greek in the original language that Jesus is really communicating that as of now, I am making all foods clean. It's not that the ancient stuff was wrong, but that I am changing it. So again, this is a declaration of authority that only God can give because God was the one that told the Israelites what was clean and what was not clean. And we have seen this all throughout Mark. Just a couple of quick examples. In Mark chapter 4, when Jesus calms the storm, right? He does, as we saw if you were here, what only God can do. Or when he raised a girl from the dead and brought them back to life, he does what only God can do. Or earlier, when the Pharisees first decided that they were going to try to kill Jesus, it is after him telling the, uh, the Pharisees what the Sabbath was actually about, right? And you can only do that if you had originally instituted it. And Jesus is saying, I was there. 
I was the one who actually instituted the Sabbath. And so here now, when he is saying that all foods are clean, he is making another declaration. So again, to be clear, Jesus has a very high view of Scripture. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, it says, not a jot or a tittle, that is not a letter, will pass away from the Word of God until it is all fulfilled. And again, the cleanliness laws, just like the ceremonial purity laws, were all a part of the Word of God. So again, this is not Jesus saying, we've moved past all that stuff, it's irrelevant, it's boring, it is unnecessary. What he is saying is that the cleanliness laws, the food laws, all of them have been fulfilled. That I have come ultimately when my death, burial, and resurrection to make all things new, to make anyone able to come to worship God. Again, the point of all of these Old Testament laws was to get you in a proper position to worship God. And what Jesus is essentially saying here is that I am the one that makes it possible for you to approach God. It is what, it's me and what I have done that is going to make that possible, or put another way, that it is Jesus who makes us clean. It is not how you ceremony wash yourself. It is not what you eat. It's not what you do. It is me. And what I have done, the only person who perfectly upheld all of the laws so that you could enter in and to be invited into God's kingdom, not because of you, but because of me. And this is why he wants our heart. It's not about what we do. It's because he's already done it. He wants our hearts. And so the last thing we'll read, uh, Mark chapter 7, verse 20, the last section through 23 it then says this, and he said, again, verse 20, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of people's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a person. Come from within. And so here, this concludes the longest conflict passage in the gospel of Mark. And Mark, it is so long because Mark is trying to underscore its importance. That it, the essential, and here's what we miss out. That what Mark is showing us and what Jesus is showing us is that the essential purpose of the Torah, which was the first five books of the Bible where we get many of the laws and the customs and the traditions, is actually a, motive, or a focus on motive and intent, not just following the law. It's so easy for us to go back, read the Old Testament, and think they have to do X, Y, and Z in order for them to be good. That's not what is happening here. In fact, if you know the story of the Old Testament, God rescues the Israelites before he gives them the law. And why does he give them the law? Not to make them live up to some certain standard, but he's saying, if you want to follow me and know me and live closely to me, if that is your desire, here is what it can look like for you to actually do that. Right? There's the assumption that they want to do it. He's not saying, do this so that you can honor me. And of course, in the New Testament, what do we see? That Jesus dies for us while we are still sinners. That if you want to experience who I am, you don't live a certain way in order for me to love you more, that I've already accomplished all of it, that I'm inviting you in. And if you want to pursue me, if you want to experience me, here is what it looks like. And so again, we should follow customs and traditions so far as they are helpful, but they should not be a litmus test of faithfulness. And so again, you can pass a test, why? And still fail at the things mentioned at these verses, right? It's why Jesus' longest sermon in Matthew 5 through 17, or Matthew chapter 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, what is it? Jesus saying, oh, you haven't committed murder, you think you're good, but yet you harbor anger in your heart. Or you say, well, I haven't committed adultery, so I'm good, and yet you're lusting after people who are not your spouse. He's not just after external conformity. He is inviting us in to him and to follow and to experience 
him. And so the question we started with this morning is that what does it look like to properly honor God? Well, here's what I would say based on this text, that it is good works with good intent that honors God. It is good works with good intent that honors God. And remember, the gospel of what Jesus has done is our motivation. We do not honor God with how we live in order to get some reward. We do it because the reward has already been given to us, that he has already declared us righteous and holy and pure, not because of us, but because of him. And so if you are here this morning or if you're watching online and you are not yet a follower of Jesus, he is not asking you to make yourself perfect before you can come to him. He's inviting you right where you are to experience his love and his grace. And in response to what he has done for us, That is why we live with good intent and with good works, not to get something, but because it's already been given. And we want as many people as possible to experience the love and grace of Jesus as we have ourselves. And so again, if I can make this really practical for you, okay? Vegetable medley, remember? This is good intent and bad action, right? My heart was in the right place. Well, that was a fail. Uh, On the flip side, maybe you think of apologizing. Now, if we're, not, if, we're, if we're being honest, sometimes we apologize because we're generally sorry, and sometimes we apologize to get someone off our back, or because we know if we say sorry, then something good will happen to us, right? We see this all the time with famous people who apologize, and they're like, if I offended anybody, it's like, no, people are mad because you did. Just say, for those that I offended, right? But why? The language in that is because they're just trying to get themselves out of the news cycle. And so if you apologize, right, for, bad, for, for just trying to get someone off your back or just to try to get something, well, that is good action, but bad intent. It might look good, but it doesn't honor God because your intent was not good. But if you want to put them both together, particularly if you're married or if you've got a roommate, buy a Roomba, baby. Good action, good intent. You know what I'm saying? Can I get an amen from somebody, right? Good action, good intent, right? It reminds me of what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, and it'll be on the screen. Again, the context for this is in Romans 11. Paul is saying how everybody, Jew and Gentile, is redeemed not by who you are, what you've done, your ethnicity, your gender, your socioeconomic status, none of those things. We are redeemed for what Christ has done for us. And then he says this, the well-known verse in Romans 12, 1. It says, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, not because of what you need to do to make yourself look good, but because of what Christ has done for you. I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Good works with good intent honors God. And he is inviting us in through the power of his spirit to live in a way that honors him, not to make us look better or to feel like we are better than other people, but simply because we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, that we have experienced his redemption. And we want other people to know that God loves them as well.